Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. As we saw last week, Jesus' transfiguration was for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. 17, 1 through 3, six days later, Peter took with him, Peter, I mean, Jesus took with him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, talking with Jesus. They, Peter, James, and John were to be pillars in the early church, but they clearly weren't ready. They failed to understand the universal nature of the coming kingdom of God. They had failed to understand that Jesus would usher in his kingdom through his suffering and his death. And they had failed to understand that the old covenant would soon be superseded by a new and better covenant. Not limited to a tribe or nation or territory or temple. But despite the fact that this entire miraculous display was done at least primarily for their benefit, we see them, represented by Peter, completely missing the message of the transfiguration here in Matthew 17, 4 through 8. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This morning we're going to look at Peter's suggestion, the Father's correction, and then Jesus' compassion. We'll begin here with Peter's suggestion. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter again takes the initiative. He was the kind of guy that uh, spoke first and then thought later. That's kind of who Peter was. And he speaks on the behalf of the other two disciples, but as usual, he serves as a pretty good representative of what all the others are thinking. Before we pick at Peter for what he gets wrong, I want to spend a few minutes acknowledging what he gets right. There is some good here to look at. First, he, he says, Lord. That's a pretty good way to start talking with Jesus, isn't it? Acknowledging his lordship. But Peter had called Jesus Lord just six days before this event. Also, in 16, 22-23, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh, so we have Peter in 16 rebuking Jesus, still calling him Lord, but his posture seems to be much better now. He's calling him Lord, but there's more commendable here than just this title. He says, it's good for us to be here. And he doesn't mean here that we're glad or privileged to be here, but that it's good that we're here because we can do what needs to be done. Peter ain't just going to sit around. He's going to do something that at least he thinks might be productive, isn't he? And I'd say that's good. Somebody that's considerate and thinks, hey, what can I be doing is kind of, that's a useful thing in the right context. But not only is he ready to work, he's also, uh, he's only ready if you wish. We see Peter yielded to the authority of King Jesus now. He's no longer taking him aside and rebuking him, saying, what you just said will never be so. He's yielded. He's taken the correction of get behind me, Satan. And he's now realizing, hey, if Jesus is Lord, I need to submit my ideas to Jesus instead of imposing my ideas upon Jesus. So there's an if you wish. He ain't wanting to get called Satan again. So he's changed his posture a little here, hasn't he? 
Um, we see Peter trying to think of good things to do, but running it by Jesus first before he does it. And he's taking initiative. What does he say he will do? I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. To, to do what? Uh, to the, the mountain. He's going to build mountaintop shelters. Well, these shelters would have been made out of branches and leaves because whatever construction you're going to get on the top of the mountain. And it, it would be the type of tabernacle or shelter or booth that they used in the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. Peter is offering to build shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I also appreciate that there's not even a thought of building a tabernacle for him or James or John. There's a humility, a certain humility in that as well. Uh, there's a commendable humility. Well, that's about all the good that I can mine out of this train wreck, but I wanted to at least point out that we need to try to think as, as much good of Peter as we can. But there's a lot of bad here too. Matthew doesn't explicitly point out the bad like Luke and Mark do, but in Luke's synoptic, he, in Luke 9.33, it says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. And in Mark 9, 6, it says he didn't know what to say, and then he said this. Guys, when you don't know what you're saying, or when you don't know what to say, it's wise to say nothing. Did you know that it's perfectly fine sometimes not to say anything? You can just be quiet. The, uh, Ecclesiastes 5.3 says that a fool shall be known by his multitude of words or by his much speaking. If you're really dumb and you keep your mouth shut, nobody knows it, you know? So it's good sometimes when you don't know what you're talking about to keep your mouth shut. So what is so bad about Peter's suggestion? Well, first of all, it's not always a time for action. This is a vision that they're seeing. Matthew 17, 9, you look forward just a little bit. It's, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So this is a vision by which to be informed rather than an event in which to participate. There is a time when, you should, when we should say, don't just stand there, do something. But there's also a time to say, don't just do something, stand there. There's a time to not act, but to sit and learn. Good thing we're here, Peter says. We can get done what needs to be done. But the problem is that Peter had no idea what needed to be done because he completely misunderstood the nature of Jesus' ministry. He misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. He, he misunderstood the world-rocking implications of the new covenant. So in Peter's pride, he forsook learning for the sake of doing. You know what the people that are most prone to forsake learning for the sake of doing are the people that have too high of an estimation of their already attained knowledge. We need to realize we don't know as much as we think we do. And we should sit and we should listen and we should learn before we act. Far for far too long, too little emphasis has been, been put on knowing the doctrine that we need to know in order to understand the actions that we need to take. And the church has simply busied herself with fruitless activities in the name of ministry. Unwise ministry at that. Ministry that undoes more than it does. There's a time to do, but action must be taken only after one understands what they should be doing and why... They should be doing it. But not only was Peter missing the instructive purpose of this vision, Peter's suggestion also puts Jesus on equal footing with Moses and Elijah. What could be more terrible than that? I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That was exactly the wrong thing to say. 
One major aspect of what was happening was that Jesus was the unique Son of God, the King of glory. Moses and Elijah were there to honor Jesus. Moses and Elijah were being graciously blessed to see things that many prophets and righteous men had longed to see. The perfect, sinless Emmanuel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the prophet that would tell the people all things that they needed to that they needed to know. And Peter puts them all on equal ground. Jesus' light is shining like the sun, but instead of emphasizing Jesus, who is shining out of his own glory, he's going to build three tabernacles that kind of evens them out. Peter's suggestion had the effect of putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the same footing. It's even possible that Peter thought it was an honor for Jesus to speak to them. We can't be sure because no difference is made. The first two observations here are pretty easy that we've covered. But the last one here, we need uh, some Old Testament and first century background. Why else is Peter so wrong? Well, I, I believe that there's another thing here that Peter is anticipating Jewish repentance. First of all, where did I get that? The word for tabernacle here... Uh, it, it can simply mean shelter, but Peter is almost certainly using the term in reference to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that I mentioned earlier. The Feasts of Booths was one of three main Jewish feasts, and during this feast the Jews would temporarily live in makeshift shelters to remember their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses during the Exodus. That's what the Feast of Booths was all about. It reminded the Jews of God's faithfulness to them to bring them out of Egypt. And it reminded them to seek after God and obey God because of His goodness and His faithfulness. Yes, there might be a time that we're not in permanent dwellings, but that God will deliver us to the land like He said that He would do. So the festival was an occasion of covenant renewal. They did it every year anticipating that God would be faithful and bring them back to the promises. The Pharisees emphasized obedience to the Mosaic law to usher in the Messianic age and they believed that before that happened Elijah would come and give a clarion call to the Jews to observe the law and announce the arrival of the Messiah. Where would they get such an idea? Well, they got it from Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So some form of eschatological, end-time fulfillment of this, fest of this festival came to be anticipated. They thought that Elijah would come, that he would call people back to the Mosaic Covenant, that there would be a final um, festival of booths to, to finally usher in all the promises of God, that there would be this renewal, everybody would repent, and that the Messiah would finally Messiah, that the King would be there, and the Jews would be this superpower once again. They would crush Rome, and all the other nations would be put under Israel's feet with, with the King, Messiah at the helm. They got that from Hosea 12, 9 through 10. I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets and I've given numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. Most likely... Peter, James, and John say, hey, we're seeing one of these visions right now. We're seeing a vision of Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah calling us back to it. Here's the time for this final festival of booths, and it's going to usher in the Messianic age. It made sense, didn't it? Zechariah 14, 16 through 21, also kind of, that's another text that they, the rabbis looked to at that time to anticipate this, this big event. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. 
In the family of e- if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then there will be no rain that will fall on them. It will be a plague for them, which the Lord smites the nations that do not go up and celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be a punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up and celebrate the Feast of Booths. So they're thinking, this is a big deal. The Messiah is here. All the nations are now going to have to repent. The centrality of Jerusalem is coming back and Peter is going to build tabernacles for Moses and Elijah and Jesus to start that big covenant renewal and that big revival that's going to restore Israel. Peter thinks that the eschatological fulfillment of this feast has arrived. When the Jews see this feast of booths initiated by Jesus and the resurrected Moses and the returned Elijah, Israel will surely repent. Peter likely is thinking here. This feast of covenant renewal will finally be the final feast of booths that will usher in a kingdom that will never end. Well, it's difficult to be too hard on Peter because everything here fits everything that he's already always believed. Hey guys, I want to remind you of something. You ever talk to people and you're telling them things that you know are biblical and they won't hear you because they're trapped in tradition? They're trapped in what they've always believed or what they've always heard? That's easy to do. Peter did it. And I'm going to venture to say that you weren't always where you are and you probably didn't come there as quickly as you like to remember it either. That sometimes you came to the realizations that you came to kicking and screaming. we got to be kind of easy on people, don't we? It's easy to understand how Peter got there. But what's so wrong about Peter's interpretation? Well, the biggest thing that's wrong with it is it's not what Jesus has said. Right? We could trace this thread throughout the entire book of Matthew, but that would take too long. So let's just look back to Matthew 16, when Jesus responds to Peter's great confession, and he says that he's going to, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church or my ecclesia. There's going to be a new ecclesia. Remember what the ecclesia was? The ecclesia was the gathered people of God. In the Septuagint, it always referred to national Israel. But Jesus told Peter that he's going to build his ecclesia that replaces the old national Israel with a new people of God. There's no room for covenant renewal in that pronouncement, is there? Or Jesus' uh, coming execution by the Jewish leaders in 1621. From that time, right after that, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. There's no room for covenant renewal in that prediction either. Everybody's not seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in a final covenant renewal festival that's going to finally bring everybody to repentance and usher in the Jewish age of dominance. That wasn't what was going to happen. The Jewish leaders were going to reject Jesus and kill him. Right? The Jews are going to become covenant breakers. They rejected the prophets and now they will fill up the measure of the guilt of their fathers by rejecting the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. Matthew 23, 32. It's because of that rejection that their old covenant is seeing its better fulfillment in the new covenant. Remember in 37 through 38 where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks and you would not. You were unwilling. Behold, your house, your temple is being left to you desolate. There's not a renewal. There's a destruction of the temple and the whole system that's coming. The old covenant's being done away with. It's being abolished and superseded by a new and better covenant. What, what Peter's saying, what Peter's expecting by building these tabernacles is a denial of what Jesus has said was coming and that the disciples would suffer and some would be killed. That's what we saw lastly in chapter 26. Again, nothing in this points to a massive repentance and covenant renewal ushering in the shalom-filled Jewish messianic age. So Peter may not be taking Jesus aside and rebuking him like he did in 1622, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you, but it's still a rejection of the path of the cross. 
Peter isn't listening to the conversation that Jesus, we, we learn from Luke, is having with Moses and Elijah about the exodus, the greater exodus, that he's about to accomplish. They don't need to be going back and celebrating Moses' exodus with booths. Jesus is going to provide a new one that makes all of those old feasts obsolete for the new ecclesia of God. But, Mo, but Peter, he wants to build tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. That explains what comes next. But this time, it's not the Son correcting Jesus. The Father takes matters into His own hands. We look at the Father's correction in verse 5. While He was still speaking... A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This time it was God the Father who corrected Peter rather than Jesus. Being confronted by God Almighty is a terrifying experience. Yes, God is good. Amen? Yes, God is merciful. Amen? Yes, God is holy. Yes, God dwells in unapproachable light. Yes, God cannot look upon sin. Consider with me this terrifying episode. First we see an interruption, verse 5, while he was still speaking. Have you ever been saying something when someone stronger, more influential than you, and in authority over you, thunders over you, silencing you, correcting you? Have you ever been there where you almost fall back? You want to crawl into a hole? Um, that's the picture that's being painted here by Matthew, but that more that stronger, more influential person that's in authority is God Almighty Himself. Peter is saying something stupid and the Father doesn't wait on him to even finish the thought and then softly and tenderly correct him. No, mid-sentence, while, while Peter is still speaking, the Father thunders over him. And he manifests himself. And we see a great intimidation. Look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The Father sends a cloud of light to surround Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the disciples. It's no ordinary cloud. This is God's glory cloud. It's referred to over and over again as the Shekinah glory of God. This cloud appears many times in the Old Testament. Above all, it took the form of a huge pillar. Think perhaps of a glowing thunderhead, clearly visible, rising high above the earth. It was the sign of God's often terrifying presence. Remember this cloud at Sinai when Moses went up to receive the law from God. In Exodus 19.16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Exodus 19, 23-24, Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth on them, that the presence of God would destroy them. They knew this warning. You think, you think Peter, James, and John didn't know their Old Testament? They didn't know what this pillar of cloud represented and how dangerous and terrifying it was? The cloud starts coming up. At the giving of the law, only Moses was able to go up to Sinai, Moses and Aaron. But when the wilderness tabernacle was completed, the cloud of glory filled it so that even Moses couldn't enter. It tells us in Exodus 40, 34-35. Luke says that the disciples were afraid as the cloud began to envelop them in Luke 9.34, which is quite understandable, isn't it? But they became even more terrified when they heard a voice that they knew was God, and God gives some important information here. The information fits very well in the context of this tabernacle, a feast of tabernacles or feast of booths. 
And behold, a voice came out of the cloud. This behold is emphasis right here. And what does what does God say? This is my beloved son. Guys, we can't just read over scripture. We gotta think about what what's what's God saying. Remember what God told Moses about Israel? Exodus 4. 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kiss your kill your son, your firstborn. Israel as a nation had been looked at as the son of God. And they, Peter's thinking there's going to be covenant renewal, that the son of God's going to be restored. And God has this massive display of his presence in the form of this pillar of cloud and says, no, no, this is my beloved son. Don't you get what's happening here? There's not a renewal of the covenant. They're covenant breakers. He will divorce those people and take up a new people. Israel as a nation is being rejected as the son because the true seed of Abraham has arrived in Jesus. Jesus had to be the offspring of Abraham, but he was the true offspring of Abraham. And all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus, the true and better son of God. Matthew's hit this theme more than once. The father saves Jesus from Herod's decree to kill all the boys under two. You remember that? And then he, how does he do it? He warns Joseph to take Jesus, where? To Egypt. And then once Herod has died, he tells uh, Joseph, hey, it's safe to return. They that sought the life of this young boy, they've died. And then Joseph comes back to their homeland. And what does, God, what does Matthew say that's a fulfillment of? Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The Jews had always understandably applied it to Israel as Hosea had attended. But Jesus is a greater fulfillment of that. He's showing, hey, there needs to be a fulfillment of Israel bringing his son out of Egypt. Jesus is going to do that in a better way even than Israel had done it. Matthew's already shined a light on that. Not only then, but when John the Baptist baptized Jesus... John had told the religious leaders, you can turn with me here so we can read this together in Matthew 3, 9 and forward. Do not suppose, 3, 9, that you can say to yourselves, he says to these scribes and Pharisees, this Jewish audience, that we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Guys, this ain't the warm fuzzies. This is judgment that it's talking about. His winnowing fork is in hand. He will thoroughly clear the, the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There was going to be no covenant renewal. There was imminent coming judgment. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord by rightly proclaiming the law of Moses, that Jesus would walk in it, be rejected, be crucified, would raise again, and then would come in judgment like he was always going to do. After Jesus was baptized into John's baptism of repentance, we see God say these same words in 3, 16 and 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So there's this signal, this, this 
this sign, this typology of Jesus dying and being raised. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This, Jesus, is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The true and better Son is this Jesus, not these people. This old root. The axe is laid at their root, and they're going to be hewn down and thrown aside. Jesus as God's beloved Son. What happens immediately after that? Jesus as God's beloved Son in chapter 4 is immediately led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was tempted for 40 years and they failed even though God fed them with manna out of heaven and gave them all the water and things they needed. Jesus was fasting and had no food, was tempted and passed every temptation sinlessly. Why? Because He was God's beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. And not only do we see this thread in the book of Matthew, but what God says here is an allusion to an Old Testament text. Psalm 2, 7-8. through 8, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, He said to me. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God is making it clear that there will be no covenant renewal. The Jews will not respond to some eschatological fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. They are destined to be covenant breakers so that the Christ can receive the promises of the covenant. And he will establish a new ecclesia just like he told the disciples that he would. And it would be an inheritance of nations. We also saw that in Matthew 8, 10 through 12, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I found not so great a faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see that? How, how pregnant that, that phrase is of this is my beloved son. But it doesn't just stop there. The same idea, we see more of the same in the with whom I am well pleased. As we've seen, the Jews looked at the nation of Israel as God's son, but they also saw the nation as God's collective servant. Isaiah 41, 8 through 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. But now we see the Father quote from the, text of, from the very next chapter where this collective is reduced to one person. Turn with me to Isaiah 42, 1-6. Israel saw themselves as the servant of God in its, because of Isaiah 41, 8 through 9. But then in Isaiah 42, 1 through 6, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And look at this servant, at how this servant is expanding the promise of the covenant. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. But he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That there's going to be an expansion uh, in the ministry of this final servant, this one man who has the spirit of God upon him and he will take the law of God out of the boundaries of just Jerusalem, Judea and Israel and he will take it to the coastlands that the kingdom will spread like leaven throughout the whole earth. I will appoint you as a covenant, it says in verse 6, to the people and as a light to the nation. That there would be a new and better covenant. That should be familiar to all of us um, if we remember the story of the uh, man with the withered hand and they wanted to tempt Jesus and they asked him, are, are you, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said, 
He gave the analogy, if you have a sheep, you'll pull it out. Why not a man? Of course a man's more valuable than a sheep. And he heals him. And then the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how they might destroy him. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed and healed. And he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. And that was a fulfillment, Matthew says, of this text. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out. He's not going to fight with these Jews, not right now, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus left the bruised reed of Pharisaic pretense for a little while. It was not God's plan to break it at that time. The smoldering flax of nominal religiousness he passed by, and he left all dealing with he left it to deal with it on another day when the hour should come to end its offensiveness. That he would end he would victoriously judge these hypocrites who were as useless as bruised reeds and offensive as smoking flax. The judgment on the whole old covenant was coming, and in 70 A.D. it did. And at that time, the time of the Gentiles was ushered in and in his name the Gentiles hope that is when Jesus came into his kingdom that's why we're still here 2,000 years today celebrating King Jesus now this uh, in whom I'm well pleased aspect has been implied and even stated in everything that we've covered in this that this is my beloved son portion but back to Isaiah we see another messianic prophecy who is as blind as my servant, Isaiah 42, 19-21, or as deaf as my messenger whom I sent, who is as blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. So that is referring back to, once again, the, the Jewish people who have twisted God's law. They have God's law, but they're twisting it like they did in this episode with Jesus. But it was well, the Lord was well pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify the law and make it honorable. That the tradition of the elders that had become so twisted that was displeasing to God, Jesus as the true servant of God would come and He would preach it rightly and God would be pleased with His true Son and His true servant. We see how Jesus did this in, his, in the dealings with the Pharisees in that last story, don't we? That's why He was killed. That's how He fulfilled the law, paid for our sins, and rose as the Son of God with power. And lastly, I know that took a while on that, instruct, uh, on that information, but do you see how that ties in with the, why the Festival of Booths was such a problem? That God is, the Father is correcting that misunderstanding and His last instruction is listen to Him. This instruction points back to Deuteronomy 18, 15-18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and your from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak all that I have commanded him. God said, Listen to him. When Jesus says he's establishing a new ecclesia, a new people of God, believe him. When he says that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are his and he will possess the gates of his enemies, believe him. When Jesus says that he will take the keys of the kingdom of heaven from the Jews and give it to a people bearing the fruit thereof, believe him. When he says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish, believe, uh, Jewish leaders, believe him. When he tells you that he will be raised up on the third day, believe him. When he tells you to take up your cross and follow him, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. If he says that some of you will not taste death until you see him coming in his kingdom, then believe him about that as well and get ready for something extraordinarily new. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he's been telling you, Peter. Why are you wanting to build... Uh, Tabernacles. Why are you wanting to have a feast of tabernacles to, usher, to, to renew the old covenant when he's already told you that it's going to be demolished and a new thing's going to replace it that is, that is infinitely better? What are you doing, Peter? That's what's going on here. But how does Jesus respond? Well, we see Jesus' compassion in verse 6. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. There's not nearly enough fear of God in our day and age. There's been too much Jesus is my homeboy theology. And not enough holy, holy, holy. We must never forget that it is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That it is by the fear of the Lord that men depart from iniquity. Hebrews 10, 31, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Back to verse 6, when the disciples heard this, there were two responses. The state of the disciples, they fell down to the ground. One thing they're doing is hiding. Sinful men in the presence of a holy God always want to hide. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had, in, had, interrupted, had uninterrupted fellowship with God. But after they sinned, what do we see? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This, I want to hide, I don't want to see, I don't want to be seen. That's part of what's going on. Also, they were overwhelmed. When, I, when Isaiah beheld the divine majesty and glory that surrounded the heavenly throne, he cried out in great fear, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, as he stood in the presence of perfect holiness. The sense of his own utter sinfulness overwhelmed him. But also we see a yielding here. There's a sense of absolute surrender when you, when you see someone fall on their face before someone that's greater than them. See it again and again in Scripture, don't we? That people fall on their face before either God or the manifestation of God, the angel of the Lord, or some um, uh, heavenly manifestation. In the Old Testament, it's the human response to a meeting with God or any heavenly being. What else could they do? Where else would they run? So, but not only did they fall on the ground, it says, and they were terrified. The disciples' fear on hearing God takes us back to Sinai as well. So, uh, Exodus 20, 18 through 21. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to, Noah, uh, to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him might remain with you, so that you might not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. That's what's going on here. God wants them to be afraid because fear does something. It make, You get scared and you'll remember the lesson that you learned while you're afraid. In the presence of that which is holy and filled with majesty, sinful men become frightened. That's why God wants to scare His children sometimes. This is Calvin. God intended that the disciples should be struck with this terror in order to impress more fully on their hearts the memory and the implications of this vision. They hadn't got it from simple instruction. They hadn't even gotten it from the vision of Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah and his face shining like the sun and his garments being like white like light. They hadn't gotten it from any of that. So God did this to absolutely terrify them. And guys, it worked. And Jesus sees them in their frightened state and he acts in compassion. Look at the response of Jesus. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. First of all, Jesus came to them. People are always coming to Jesus in the book of Matthew. But in Matthew, only here and in 28.18, with the giving of the Great Commission, does Jesus go to the people. He sees them on their faces in a terrified condition, and he takes the initiative to go over to them. And what does he do when he gets there? He touches them. The verb can be used for fastening oneself to or clinging to someone. 
But whatever it means, it's a reassuring, comforting physical touch. There could be no other reason for including this detail than to highlight the tenderness of Jesus' heart toward his slow-learning disciples. I can't help but point out the the difference between how he uh, engages with Peter when Peter stood before him and rebuked him and said, uh, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, for your mind is set on the things of man, not the things of God. That There you see a defiant Peter challenging Jesus. Here you see a trembling Peter, James and John, on the ground. Guys, when somebody's down, you don't kick them. You don't do that. When they're down, when they're broken, you give law to the proud. But you give grace to the humble. And Jesus is giving grace here. Jesus loves these men. So to comfort them, he walks over to them and he tenderly touches them. Isn't that our impulse when we see somebody grieving that you, you, you don't even know what else to do so you walk over and you just put your hand on them to reassure them that everything's going to be okay? Well, here's the thing. When I put my hand on them and reassure them everything's going to be okay, everything may or not, may not really be okay. When Jesus does it, you can take a great solace in that, can't you? can take a great solace in that. The disciples had been through a very trying experience. They understood their sin, but they also must have immediately realized that their master was still with them and that he felt for them. And what does he say? He says, get up and do not be afraid. The words do not be afraid are found often throughout Scripture. And what amazing words they are. How can sinful men encounter a holy God and not be afraid? It reminds me of when Israel sinfully asked for a king and Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12, 20, Do not fear, for you have committed this great evil. What? Don't, I've committed this great evil and don't be afraid? Yeah, because God's great faithfulness to His people, we, we can fail and God's still faithful to us and we don't have to be in fear when we're repentant and we're humble and we're sorry. What mercy... Psalm 103.8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When we have sinned, we can return to the Lord our God. Joel 2.13, For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. And what did the disciples see once they got up? They saw no one except for Jesus Himself alone. That's what makes it possible for sinners to encounter God and not be afraid. These final three words, Jesus Himself alone, is why we can have no fear. Jesus is the mediator between us. He's the God-man who intercedes on our behalf between the pure holiness of God and our sinful nature. And He, as a man, took on our sinful nature, paid the penalty for us, and bridged the gap. Everything that Peter, James, and John didn't want Jesus to go through is the very reason why Jesus could touch them and say, don't be afraid, and it mean anything at all. The new covenant, we gain everything. What Moses offered and tablets of stone, it could do nothing. What the priesthood, the blood of bulls and goats, they couldn't take away sin. It was all prefiguring something better. It was all looking forward to Jesus, the one who would abolish that old covenant and would usher in a new and better covenant. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because the work was done. And it's because of that that we can have peace with God. This terrifying... For those who know Jesus, there can be no greater comfort. There's no Moses threatening us. There's no Elijah echoing the threatenings of the law. And what does Jesus immediately start doing in verse 9, which we're going to delve into more next week? 
pointing them back to the unavoidable reality that they just keep rejecting. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man, this Son of Man figure, who's going to bring judgment on Israel, just like I've been telling you, Daniel said I had to do. After I've risen from the dead, you can tell people about this vision. Because then I think you'll actually finally understand it. I have to die because it's through my death that I fulfill the law. You say, how's that? How does he become our perfect prophet by his death? Greater love has no man than this that a man lays down his life for his friends and love is the fulfillment of the law. On love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That hinges all the law on the prophets. To fulfill the law, he had to do that. To die for us. To purchase us when we were needy. To be the great priest, he had to offer himself. The blood of bull and oxen couldn't do it, but it took a human sacrifice and he offered himself once and for all for our sins. He became our final sacrifice. And in his resurrection, in in that, God saw that offering, received it, and God highly exalted it and gave him a name that is above every name. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne God, reigning over his people. And who is that? That's people spread throughout the whole earth, composed of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. They were wanting to hold on to an old covenant that was limited to a particular people in a particular place where the presence of God was only manifested in a temple and where there was a limited priesthood. But Jesus had something better and God saw to it that they remembered through this miraculous correction. And Jesus compassionately restored them despite their hard-headedness. Aren't you glad that Jesus compassionately restores us when we're hard-headed, when we don't get things? as quickly as we should. We serve a compassionate Savior who paid it all on our behalf. Let's rejoice in Him. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this, uh, seeing this episode. We see ourselves so much in it of misunderstanding things that You're trying to teach us. Lord, that many times we're trying to do good, but the frailty of our flesh and the strongholds of sin that we have, the blind spots, Lord, we're just held down by those things. But Lord, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your thunderings that correct us at times, but also your compassionate restoring that you do. God, we pray that you would uh, deal with us tenderly, that you would purify us of all unrighteousness, that you would transfer the cleanness of you in your touch to us, make us holy as you are holy, and that you would let us take this message of good news to the whole earth, to whom it belongs, that this new covenant is we go into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all to observe all things whatsoever you've commanded. Lord, enable us to do that. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.